Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. It's Monday, the 18th of November. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. And if you are if you are anything like me, then you know that sometime today, somebody's going to send you the little Monday motivation hashtags, little hashtag Monday motivation. Sometimes they are related to things that we committed to at the outset of the year. It does kind of remind me that if we committed to things at the first of the year, some of us uh, may have called those um, things New Year's resolutions. Like, it's time's getting short if you <laughs> if we're going to get those things done by the end of the year. And you may also be thinking, hmm, yeah, there's not enough time left in this year to get done what I committed to this year. So it's clearly going to carry over to yet another year. I, I now have like a list of carryover resolutions because I, I maybe they're just things that I'm just clearly never going to get to. But anyway, do you have some carryover resolutions? If so, uh, if you don't want to carry them forward into 2020, it's it, we've got like six weeks left to get get her done, to get her done. So Monday motivation though, tend to be Monday motivation hashtags tend to be around those kinds of concepts. I want to lift up a Monday motivation for us that I hope is motivating for every day, not just Monday, but every day. And it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, well, f- 5 and 6, actually, I, I like the whole book. But anyway, this might be uh, if I have like a go-to passage of scripture. Um, we, 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 do, we often talk about having a, a life song. Um, some of us talk about having a life verse. This is sort of one of those go-to passages for me. Uh, it's in this passage um, further further on that... Um, that Paul talks about our being ambassadors. You hear me use that language frequently. I absolutely understand myself and you as Christ's ambassadors, kingdom ambassadors. We are in the midst of the kingdoms of this world to represent the king and the kingdom principles uh, of of what is real, what is substantially eternally real, which is that which is operating at the kingdom level, big K kingdom level. And so all of the little skirmishes of this kingdom reality, small k, right? We, we are here to serve as ambassadors, witnesses, people who testify on behalf of the king and the real kingdom. Okay, so that's further on in the Second Corinthians passage. But the the Monday motivation verse, and actually I hope this is our like everyday motivation verse, uh, comes from Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Compel, to compel is to motivate, is to, is to push along, is to... Um, is to move in a intentional direction. For Christ's love motivates us, compels us, moves us forward intentionally in a particular direct direction. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So let our Monday motivation be that God has loved us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Let that be our Monday motivation today. Let the grace of God revealed in in and through the person and the sacrifice, uh, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let that be our Monday motivation. Let Christ's love compel us today. Let us live as those who are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all have died. And therefore, if we are living, then we are living as people who are redeemed, raised again to newness of life. And um, if you've already been raised to newness of life, then um, then you're already dead. What what then can the world do to you? That's sort of the Galatians 2.20 uh, life verse. All right, our Monday motivation, let Christ's love compel us. When we come back, I'm going to be talking with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. He and I are going to enter into some of the issues of the day. We'll be right back. Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. You can follow him on Twitter at Brandon M. Show. You can also find him at ChristianPost.com. Brandon, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Um, let's uh, let's start today. Let's start today um, with the question of whether or not girls are real. <laughs> <laughs> I feel oh like I feel like I'm a girl and I'm real. And so when I read a headline where a teacher is telling little children that girls are not real, I'm uh, I'm a little disturbed by that. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, Carmen, we've discussed this in related issues before. And I, by the day I, I you know, I wake up to stories and just scratch my head and, <laughs> you know, I can hardly believe half the stories I'm writing, but in Canada, that was, um, there was a teacher who, was teaching this gender curriculum um, in Ontario, and among the things that she was teaching these young kids, kids as young as six, was that boys and girls aren't real, that there was this big spectrum, and just sowing more and more gender confusion into the minds of very young children. But this, you know, this family, this mother of this particular six-year-old girl decided to, earlier this year, file a human rights complaint with the provincial commission, but then filed an amended uh, application with an actual lawsuit. Um, They followed up with that just very recently. Um, And the girl that was so confused about hearing that girls are not real and boys are not real, and she was worrying after she saw this crazy video that she might not actually be a female, um, it really disturbed her. And so they decided to take the extra step and do the actual lawsuit with uh, an additional firm with a firm who was able to take the case further than their previous complaint, just to the human rights commission. But so these are parents who are taking action, um, but it's absolutely, I think, insane and evil what is going on, not just in Canada, but around the United States as well, where we're just deliberately gaslighting children by telling them lies about the most basic facts of our being. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna have as related to that this story um, of YouTube censoring pediatricians um, who would be trying to tell people the truth about reality. So can you share with us that? Because I really think that these con- these stories in conversation with one another are helpful for parents to hear. Well, my friend Dr. Michelle Cortella of the American College of Pediatricians has been one of the most outspoken people against the medicalization of gender puberty blockers, surgical interventions for this craze of people trying to change their sex 
And she did a really brilliant interview with the Daily Signal, which is a publication of the Heritage Foundation here in town, uh, where she was an uns- she was unpacking the the various um, you know dynamics that happen when children get confused about their being when they're psychologically troubled or. And so she was explaining how this happened with one of her own patients uh, and how, for example, if you go into a doctor's office and you you, you want to chop off an arm or a leg, you, you'll be diagnosed with body integrity disorder, but they won't, they won't do it. And yet, if you say that you're the opposite sex, they will put you on a medical pathway to do that. And she was speaking about how unethical it, this was. And so there was one particular quip during her little blurb on this video that YouTube deemed offensive and therefore the video was taken down and the Daily Signal was told that it would not be put back up unless there was a a censorship of that one line. I mean, so this is big tech, big brother, censoring free speech because this issue is apparently so off limits. And so I, I don't know what the latest is, if there has been any update since, but that online streaming platform uh, doesn't have that video anymore. And it's, I mean, it's, it's already gone live on Facebook, so Facebook hasn't taken it down. But we are seeing a systematic push to suppress thought, particularly about this issue, on most social media platforms. And I think it's quite alarming. All right. And there we're talking about, uh, you know, the United States of America, which has the most generous free, free speech uh, laws probably in the world. Let's take the a pivot. First Amendment, right. Yeah. Let's take a pivot right after the break um, to a place where there is no First Amendment, there is no guarantee of freedom of speech, and where the open persecution of Christians now includes face and fingerprint scanning installed by the government uh, at the front of the church. So um, that story up next here with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. We'll be right back. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I am talking with Brandon Showalter from the Christian Post. You can find him online at christianpost.com. You can also find him on Twitter, Brandon M. Show. Brandon, let's talk about China. Uh, this has been a continuing subject of concern, um, not only between you know you and I and, and sort of the Christian listening public in terms of persecution, China is of concern on so many fronts right now. And so let's just talk about this particular story that you guys have posted um, about face and fingerprint scanning, because this is a little bit at the at the intersection of technology and artificial intelligence and persecution. Like persecution has like whole new ways of using technology to suppress people of faith. Yes, well, the publication Bitter Winter, um, it's which is which is a publication that explores the human rights and religious freedom in China, had this great story which I subsequently reported on, um, and it's it is quite alarming. Uh, and you're right that it is about the sort of the intersection of you know, technology and state-sponsored, you know, opposition persecution of the church. But it was reported that there was a facial recognition system. Um, it was placed in one of the government-controlled churches um, in the province of Urumqi, and the capital city of um, actually the, where the Uyghur region is, the autonomous region is, and it's now being introduced. That facial recognition system is being introduced elsewhere in China, and it's it's just so crazy where you know, people are scanning their faces and. 
fingerprints to just go into church. And people aren't, I mean, the government thinks nothing of it, but it's it's just kind of, there was an account of, you know, one of the Christians in China told this publication that someone who was in charge of the, you know, operating this machine was like, just like employees, punch in at work. You know, the church can know who's attending the services and who doesn't. And it, it seems as though every single Chinese person is under the watchful eye of the government over there through their growing, you know, program, uh, one of which is called the Sharp Eyes Project, um, which has had a presence in state-run churches for several years. You know, cameras are even placed in the washrooms in certain, you know, churches to they just compre- they just it's, it's to comprehensively monitor every single thing that that people do. Um, I I think people are addicted to technology enough as it is here in the United States, but it's off the charts in China where literally everything is tracked, everything. So um, as I read this, I I am mindful that um, I I don't attend a church that sends around uh, an attendance register anymore, but Mm -hmm. lots of churches still do that, right? I mean, the the letting the church know that we're there and who's there and what our prayer concerns are, or how to get in touch with us, right? Like I want, I want to be able to say to Christians in the United States of America, um, if the church that you're attending wants to know that you're, that you're there so that they can provide the ministry that they're, um, you know, that they exist to provide. um, This is a, this is something completely different. And I would feel, I would, I think I would feel very different, differently about um, a church register, if that church register were this like facial or fingerprint recognition system. And yet I bet there are people listening right now who be, who are saying to themselves, that would be a whole lot easier than all that data entry that we're doing every week to uh, to sort of take note of who is in worship. If we could just have this and it were, you know, then this would be so much easier and so much better. I just think that our desire for convenience is a question we have to continually ask ourselves when we yes. adopt technologies that mm-hmm. are then absolutely um, potentially used in ways that we did not initially conceive of. And so um, I I just appreciate you bringing us this story because I do think that it helps us think critically about our adoption of new technologies, how we use them, particularly how we use them in the life of the church or in the lives of our families. And I think that's the, you know, that's the question that many Christians will be asking and answering today and in this holiday season, which of these new technologies am I going to invite into my home uh, hand to my children and make use of, you know, right here where I live. Um, and we have this story from China, which is certainly a, an opportunity for prayerful concern, increased, again, prayerful concern for Christians around the wor- world to be praying for our brothers and sisters in China. Um, now, I would love to lift up a good news story. Uh, and this one, Brandon, um, maybe wow, maybe there would not be a more clear way of saying we don't live in China. And here in the United States of America, we still have this just incredible, incredible freedom of religion. Talk with us about National Bible Week, which is the week of Thanksgiving, which is next week. Right. Yes. This was the Wisconsin legislature resolution, which declared, you know, the week of Thanksgiving to be National Bible Week. And so this was, you know, voted on you know, last Tuesday, and it was—it's just sort of recognized the importance of reading the Bible and how it's been encouraging, encouraging and comforting for many people 
throughout the history of the state of Wisconsin um, and how it's sort of inspired the citizens of that state and um, you know, passed 86 to 9 with you know, four abstentions. And so it's, um, it's, really, it's really kind of amazing to see this kind of regard for Scripture. And um, it's, um, you know, this is a you know, bipartisan, bipartisan bill supported. Um, and of course, the Atheist Foundation, the Freedom From Religion Foundation was all up in arms. And they were saying that, well, what if there was a national Quran week? The point is, is that the Bible has played more of a role in our history, much more of a role than the Quran ever will. Not that we don't have religious freedom and that Muslims deserve to have their rights here too, obviously. Um, but um, it's very interesting to see and encouraging, I think, also to see a government body um, so overwhelmingly recognize um, how God's Word has imbued life uh, into us and into our faith, into our into our government. So it is good news indeed. So um, I do think there are all kinds of opportunities in what I will call the holiday season, because I think that it stretches beyond Christmas. I'm going to use, you know, Christmas as my understanding of not only the day uh, upon which we celebrate the birth of Christ, but I'm going to use it as the 12 days of Christmas as that as that particular season. Um, and then we have this lead up to Christmas, which is Advent. And then prior to that, we uh, have Thanksgiving, and I would say we are already in what I experience as this holiday season. But the word holiday um, actually also got voted down by the Wisconsin um, legislature. They voted, I loved this at the very end of this article about National Bible Week, um, they voted 64 to 30 to call the evergreen tree at the Capitol a Christmas tree in response to the governor's decision to name it a holiday tree. I just think that there are all kinds of opportunities for us as Christians to make our faith known in this season and to do so in ways that are encouraging and compelling to others. So maybe a public reading of Scripture where you are is something that um, that you could do on the doorstep of your house. Maybe instead of going caroling to the homes of other people, you could simply stand in your own front yard and have a public reading of Scripture. What kind of testimony might that be? I mean, I, that might be kind of cool. Use your creativity. Do something cool. I love that. Nice. Yeah. Go for it. All right, Absolutely. so there you go. Um, there might be a public reading of scripture uh, on my front. Well, and I love the I love, love the love the caroling too. And I think that's great. I do too. I think, car- car- I do too. I think caroling just... is a form of evangelism because a lot of those like, those old Christmas songs have really just contained the story. I mean, it's I'm like I think it's a very singer. kind of great. Well, but you know, but you go with a group, and you know, <laughs> yes, get some wassail needs to and go with some... a group. Yes, it's fine. Carmen needs no, to good. go with a group. That's a good good. Good counsel there. Good counsel. Brandon Showalter, thank you as always for all that you do, bringing us uh, news stories that sometimes disturb us and get us um, stirred up, which is a positive thing, um, but also all the good news stories that you track down. We really uh, do appreciate it. You guys can find Brandon at the Christian Post, ChristianPost.com. You can also find him on Twitter at Brandon M. Show. Thanks, my friend. Thank you. We'll be right back. Okay, what's your Monday motivation? What's your compelling scripture verse? What's getting you out the door today? What is your creative uh, evangelism idea? Are you um, open to inviting God to seat somebody next to you on an airplane or a train or a bus or even in your own car who might need some encouragement in the Lord today? You are a witness. You are an ambassador 
you're there to give positive public testimony. I don't, I don't know what that looks like in your life. Um, I know that sometimes in my life it's more uh, successful than, than other times, but it's always an opportunity uh, for me to draw unto the Lord and saturate my life in the Word of God, inviting the Holy Spirit to cultivate within me a deeper and deeper desire and ability to communicate effectively with others the truths of who God is, the reality of God's presence, um, the sense of fellowship with Him. So I encourage you in that same way today. All right, up next, Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, he and I are going to talk about a number of things going on in Washington, D.C., as well as a conversation about how you can probably predict how somebody is going to vote based on what music they listen to. Mm-hmm. That's super interesting. We'll be right back. You know, most people find it easy to talk about their flaws and bad habits. But what about sharing your good habits? Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. When it comes to the things we do well, many of us can be too shy to share them with others. We get worried we'll be perceived as prideful or arrogant. So I'm going to practice what I preach and share a couple thoughts with you. When it comes to money, here's a few good habits that have helped me. Make sure you have an emergency savings bucket, a rainy day fund so you can cover unexpected expenses. Only use debt when it's necessary. Too much debt can encumber you and make it harder to prepare for the future and give to others. Finally, live below your means. You don't want to be strapped for cash. You know what's the best habit of all? Asking God daily to guide you to be wise with money. That's one sure way to live a more content, confident, and generous life. Joining me again today, Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. You can uh, follow him on Twitter at CarringtonAM. You can also find him at Hillsdale.edu. Hey, welcome back. Glad to be back. How are you all doing? <laughs> well, we all—that would include Paul. We all, yes. we all, are doing well. How are you, how how are you doing, Ewans? Is it Ewans where you live? Because it's not y'all where you live. It's y'all where I live. But it's like Ewans where you live. Yes. That that that's closer. Yeah. We 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 don't. The English language doesn't know how to do the <laughs> uh, plural second person, and uh, we've never quite had known how to do how to deal with that. Uh. <laughs> Uh, you and I are not going to deal with the plural second person today, but we are going to deal with uh, the reality of men and women. Um, apparently, the Equal Rights Amendment is back in play. So I'm reading from a number of news sources. I actually read it first last week on Vox, uh, but now Washington Examiner, Washington Post. I mean, now it seems like everybody is in the uh, in the knowing awareness that uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, now that the Virginia, uh, all three branches of the of the Virginia state government are held by Democrats, that this Equal Rights Amendment, which, you know, came around in 1972, uh, may now have its 38th state ratify it, and it may, in fact, be a constitutional amendment. So I think we should start with this, Professor. How is the Constitution of the United States amended, and does it seem reasonable to you that uh, the ERA which passed Congress in 1972, requiring 38 states to ratify it, might take this many years uh, to actually happen. 
Sure. The the constitutional amendment process and what this means is that while the founders believed that they had passed a very good constitution, they didn't assume it was perfect. And uh, the process that uh, there's really two, the process that has always been used is that Congress takes up an amendments text. Two thirds of the House of Representatives and two thirds of the Senate have to vote to approve. Then after that occurs, it goes to the state legislatures and three fourths of the state legislatures have to also approve the exact same text. And when I say that, it has to be a majority of three quarters of the uh, uh, of the different states. And so that's that's the baseline. Um, the, the Equal Rights Amendment is really fascinating because if you just take those bare bones rules, then Virginia passing it uh, would make it the 38th state, would make it the uh, uh, an amendment to the Constitution. But as, as many people are pointing out, there's some interesting extenuating factors that may make it actually debatable as to whether that's the case. And and you're asking how long can amendment an amendment go without being ratified? Well, actually, it could be forever until it gets approved. That actually happened. Our, tw- our most recent amendment was originally proposed by uh, James Madison in 1791, didn't get passed, got brought back up in the 1980s, and now it's the rule that the uh, Congress, if it gives itself a pay raise, that pay raise can't take effect until the next session. So uh, uh, there's some other extenuating factors that we should probably get into, though, regarding why this one could be a little more complicated. It's that uh, Congress gave a window saying, we are going to allow this long for the states to consider this, and if they don't approve of it, then it's dead. And that was passed in 1982. That was the deadline. Since then, several states have also rescinded their ratification of the amendment, saying we no longer approve of it. And that's where this will be a big debate. Do those things matter in the constitutional process of an amendment? Um, It's messy for real life. It's going to be fascinating for me as someone who studies uh, the Constitution. Okay, I didn't know the part about some states have it, who had passed it at one point, then rescinded it. Like I, that's see, I'm, I'm it's always it's a feast, man. It's just learning every day. Well, okay, and there's... and what's there's an interesting point to that though, because there are certain other amendments that states later tried to rescind. And the courts and other people have said it doesn't matter uh, that they rescinded it. So it's it's going to be messy trying to figure out what matters and what doesn't as far as this goes. And you as a constitutional junkie are just going to be in like – you're just going to be delighted because the public is going to be talking about the constitutional amendment process. Here's my, um, here's my question. I think we're still going to be in the same conversation about the definition of sex um, because it, before the Supreme Court right now, we are – we seem to be um, discussing is does sex mean what we have always thought it means, which is male and female expressly two genders binary reality, or does it include um, a spectrum of sexual identity, uh, soji, sexual orientation, gender identity? Um, I don't think that the er that the equal rights amendment changes that conversation very much. I, I agree completely on that. I, I don't see now. OK, I'm a man, so I'll put that out there. So we had this conversation uh, but, earlier because I had to declare that I am a girl. Yes. Right. Uh, I am female. Uh, I am a girl. 
Well, and I'm saying I, I, I don't want to be taken as mansplaining, but I, I, I don't know that this is a necessary amendment on one hand, because I believe that giving equal protection of the laws should be read to not make illegitimate distinctions on the basis of gender matter. But you're right that even in addition to that, our understandings of sexuality are becoming uh, so debated, uh, so contested that I, I think the real battle is going to be in the culture and it's going to be legislatively as a result of the culture in trying to define these terms and these ideas and that an amendment really isn't going to give the kind of clarity that some people I think are hoping it will. I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right on that. Okay, so I promised people before the break that you and I were going to talk about the correlation between musical preference and what's on their playlist um, and voting patterns. So let's um, let's have that conversation. I I find this fascinating. Maybe all I need to do at Thanksgiving uh, with people who I don't know very well is to say what's on their playlist before I get into a political conversation because their playlist is a predictor of their voting pattern. Right. And, and this is fun. And, and of course, we can't take it too far. But uh, yes, The Economist did a, a study of what people have on their playlist. They also fa- got information on what tickets uh, to concerts people bought by region and correlated those to voting patterns and found, uh, you know, that even uh, controlled for region of the country, that if you are a Republican, even if you're a Republican that lives in Manhattan, uh, you are more likely to listen to country music. If you are a Democrat, even if you're a Democrat that lives in uh, a, a rural uh, Wisconsin, you're more likely to listen to hip hop. Uh, and, and a very interesting thing is they found that the most the regions that uh, uh, moved from voting for President Obama to President Trump were most likely to listen to heavy metal. Uh, um, uh, and so I, that, I think those are really fascinating things. And, and with Thanksgiving come up, coming up, I think you're right. You can just ask people what they want to play in the background to see what their preferences might be. Uh, but I do think there's something interesting to, to those, those, those uh, uh, connections, that uh, there are some things about those genres of music that have some overlap to some of the principles, priorities, and even personalities of the different parties. Uh, I, I don't think that's completely made up. Okay, now I can just shamelessly say everybody should just be listening to our music affiliate, KTIS. <laughs> that's yeah, it, right? Oh, right, well, the, well, well, Paul, that, let me get Paul Perot. Yeah. Let me I'm get not, Paul Perot you, on you got to be careful because hey, we are in multiple can, markets here. I know, but so how how can people listen to really good, high-quality Christian Christian music like we have on KTIS. In well, the that's Twin in the cities. Twin Cities. If you're so, in they the... can't listen to that. They can't stream that. They can't. Well, they can, but if they're, for example, our listeners up in the Fargo area, there's Life ninety seven point nine in Sioux Falls. There's Life ninety six point five down in Waterloo. It's Life one hundred one point nine up in Duluth. It's uh, Life ninety seven three, and in Madison, it is uh, Life one hundred two point five. See, Adam, do you see why I do this? Because doesn't that give you great joy? Did you couldn't you hear the pressure in his voice? Like <gasps> she's asked me like a trick question. Yeah, come thank on. you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. That was awesome. Put on the spot. Well, <laughs> and, and take... I'll say 
Oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, I was gonna no, say go I can uh, the 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 nerd aside of this uh, to to because I have to do it because of my PhD is if you actually go back to the ancients and even moderns, if you go back all the way to Plato, they make a big deal of what music citizens listen to and say that what the lyrics are, what the musical style is, affects your soul. And in the way it affects your soul, it affects how uh, virtuous or vicious of a citizen you might be. And they they don't say it's the one deciding factor and music destroys or makes you good or bad but they say it's part of are you peaceful gentle are you contemplative do you uh, approve of tradition do you um love uh the idea of reform they think all of these things are are, are based in the kind of music you listen to so now you are you are reminding me that we just had a conversation at the end of last week with karen swallow Pryor about um, taste, like what what our tastes are in art or what our tastes are in literature. And this would apply here as well. My taste in music is either cultivated in a direction of, you know, good and righteous fruit, or it is cultivated in a direction of that which is maybe immediately satiating to uh, to me, but not ultimately upbuilding of my soul. And so here we are, we are deep into this conversation um, about the humanities and the value of art appreciation, even when it comes not just to visual art, but also to music. So, yeah, thank you, sir. Excellent. All right. Hey, I, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, you and I are going to pivot to a conversation about uh, the Supreme Court having heard the DACA case, which you very dutifully listened to the audio of over the weekend. We'll be right back talking with Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Dr. Adam Carrington teaches a number of courses at Hillsdale College. You can check it out at hillsdale.edu. Hillsdale actually offers a lot of courses um, online for free so that you and I can actually improve uh, our understanding of this magnificent um, constitutional, I'm probably not even going to string these words together in the right way, representative democracy that we enjoy here in the United States of America. One of um, Adam's passions is the Supreme Court of the United States, and the Supreme Court heard the DACA case this past week. So what do we need to know? I, I, and I hope uh, possibly I should probably do a little bit of background that DACA is the uh, policy that was implemented by the Obama administration saying that if you are or came here as a child uh, illegally with your with your family and have not committed any crimes uh, uh, and or anything along those lines that you can basically get what's called deferred action and that means that the the government is not going to make you a deport deportation priority and they're going to let you do things like get a social security card and do other things uh, at least for two year periods which can be renewed and uh, this policy was very controversial uh, because many saw it as uh, a, a bad on two levels one that it was uh, giving a semi-legal status to people who had come here illegally against immigration laws and two uh, there was a big problem of 
why wasn't this passed by Congress? Did it violate the separation of powers by 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 having the executive just basically make law on his own? And what happened is the Trump administration got in, they they thought about it for a while, and they rescinded it. They said, we're getting rid of this. We're no longer going to do this. And so a lawsuit, as it always does, came before the Supreme Court. And uh, the fate of right now about 700,000 uh, uh, persons uh, uh, who have applied and gotten this deferred action is at stake as to whether the Trump administration properly got rid of this uh, program or not. So uh, that uh, the argument went before the Supreme Court uh, on uh, this past week, and it's going to be one of the biggest cases on the Supreme Court uh, in the spring when it finally comes out. And uh, I, I think if you look at uh, the the argument, at least legally, uh, I think it's pretty likely that the Trump administration is going to win on this. And then it's going to be a very interesting policy discussion. Uh, to what degree do the American people think of this as enforcing immigration laws? And to what degree they think of this as a question of compassion for people who came here not of their own choice as children? So... So I think that's the basic layout of of, of what is going on here and, and what we're going to see going forward when this opinion finally comes down. I feel like, Adam, this is one of those times where we are going to, as a country, um, we're going to say to ourselves, OK, this is what our laws say is legal or illegal. And this is um, then what we are asking those who enforce the laws to do. And then we're going to look and say, hmm. I um, I I don't think we want to do that. When we talk about the way an entire nation changes its own laws, we are talking about um, not only a legislative process, but we're talking about Americans getting to uh, getting to a place where we, the people, actually figure out what we think and feel about something, and then impressing that upon those whom we have elected to represent us. Um, but it feels like that process is often. Hmm. Interrupted by particular groups of people who have, you know, some kind of particular interest and a lot of money to push in one direction or the other. And and I just think that this is one of those opportunities where I hope that regular everyday citizens like myself will will make it known to our lawmakers that, you know, this is either a law we like or don't like and we want to see it enforced in this way or that way, because I do think this is going to be upheld as constitutional. It's going to be upheld as legal. And then we're going to have to say, are we really going to deport 700,000 plus people who have been here since they were children? This is the only language they know and the only country that they've ever uh, known that they've lived in. Uh, you're you're right. And that's really two separate questions. One is, how do we how do we decide what we want to do as a country? And two, what do we decide? Mm. And I think there's been a huge uh, circumvention of what we decide because of how we decide. We've really Congress has really punted this decision and it's it's not healthy. It's not constitutional for either bureaucrats or one executive to be making this kind of decision. 
election. It violates separation of powers, but it violates our ability as we the people to make those kind of determinations and to have the really hard conversation, as you said, about how do we balance the fact that um, the the people who are in this situation are here uh, not of their own choice. It's a really difficult circumstance. But at the same time, uh, a lot of the American people legitimately say we've got to do something about enforcing our immigration laws. And Congress was the one set up to do this. And I think we we undermine our own ability to really seek justice when we allow courts or executives or bureaucrats to do that. That's not the way the founders set it up because they're not the best ones to make that decision. And it feels like there are some really good ideas out there right now related to um, comprehensive immigration reform. I hope that some of those make some real traction as we approach this uh, DACA decision by the Supreme Court. Adam Carrington, thank you so much, as always, for informing us and helping us see things um, from from a Christian worldview and helping us see clearly in terms of Wow. Just, well, the way we have designed ourselves as we, the people, it's really helpful for us to just continue um, returning to these conversations. So we, we appreciate your joining us. Always an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. That's Adam Carrington. He is um, he is currently uh, the um, Hillsdale College uh, faculty member of the year. Like, right. He's like professor of the year right now. So we have to keep celebrating that. Uh, and we will be right back here on Mornings with Carmen in just a moment. Okay, I misspoke. Adam Carrington is last year's Teacher of the Year. Oh, well, you're our Teacher of the Year right here on Mornings with Carmen. We're going to inaugurate the Teacher of the Year award, and we're going to give it to Adam. Uh, but we have we, we would have other people in the running, so I don't know how to spread that around a little bit. Maybe that could be a listener survey question. Of all of the uh, members of various faculties from around the country that we have on the show, who's your favorite professor? Adam Carrington. Uh, Hunter Baker, Peter Kapsner. I'm gonna, I'm gonna embarrass myself. Sometimes we've had Dan Dewitt. All right, so there you go. Uh, who do we have on? At Linda Mental, Karen Swallow Pryor. Who do you like to listen to in the professorial category uh, of our guests? There you go. Give me a little feedback. You can always text me eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four or email me Carmen at myfaithradio.com. We've got a whole nother hour of mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.